Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Welcome back to Talking Tudors, episode 110. I'm your host, Natalie Gruninger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. It's easy to do. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. May's prize is a book pack consisting of book one and two, of Wendy J. Dunn's Falling Pomegranate Seed series, The Duty of Daughters, and All Manner of Things. A huge thank you to the author for sponsoring this wonderful prize. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about Lancelot de Carle's poem about Anne Boleyn is Joanne Delaneva. Joanne is Professor of French Literature at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana, where she began teaching in 1982. A native of Philadelphia, she earned her PhD from Princeton University, specializing in literature of the French Renaissance. She has written extensively on French and Italian literature, especially poetry of the early modern period. While at Notre Dame, she had the opportunity to live and teach in London for a total of five years, most recently from 2017 to 2020. There, she took an interest in Tudor history, especially the reign of Henry VIII, and has developed this avocation as the focus of her current research in European literature, beginning with her forthcoming translation of Lancelot de Carle's French poem on the death of Anne Boleyn. She's currently researching a book tentatively titled Romancing Henry VIII, Literary Representations of the king and his reign in early modern European literature, where she will analyse French, Italian and Spanish poems, plays, short stories and novels about Henry and his court. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break. Thank you to Joy von Spain for allowing me to share her rendition of O Death, Rock Me Asleep, a 16th century poem traditionally attributed to Anne Boleyn. Oh, 
Welcome to Talking Tutors, Joanne. How are you? Oh, just fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Really excited to be chatting with you, actually. So I suppose, thank you. I suppose a good place to start would be by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. Sure. Um, I'm a professor of Romance Languages and Literatures at the University of Notre Dame, which is a private university in the Midwestern United States. And I've been teaching there since 1982, so for quite some time. Uh, I'm a specialist in 16th century French and Italian literature. Uh, I'm originally from Philadelphia, which is on the East Coast of the U.S., um, and I received my Ph.D. from Princeton University, And I've been teaching literature at Notre Dame um, for many, many years. And in fact, I taught in Notre Dame's London program on three separate occasions, which was a really wonderful experience for me, because that's really what helped me to become more acquainted with uh, Tudor history. Of course, I was interested in 16th century French history, but then I could move on into English history as well. Um, And most recently, I was there for a three-year period, starting in 2017 as the academic director of the program. It was a wonderful experience for me to be able to be there for such an extended period of time. So this is an exciting month for you because this month your new book, The Story of the Death of Anne Boleyn, a poem by Lancelot de Carle, will be published. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? And also it would be great to hear a little bit about the inspiration behind the project too. Absolutely. Uh, Well, first of all, I'm not absolutely sure it's going to be published uh, this month, uh, but it should be published sometime soon, hopefully at least during 2021. That's our plan anyway. But a little bit about the genesis of the book. Uh, When I was teaching in the London program for my university, the time before last, so that was 2013-2014, I wanted to develop a new course that would combine my real expertise in French literature with my interest in Tudor history. And so I wanted to uh, devise this course on the literature from the reigns of Henry VIII and Francis I. And so I was preparing for this class, and as I was reading all sorts of things, because I really needed a lot of new information about Tudor history, because that was not my academic specialty. One of the things I came across was Susan uh, Susanna Lipscomb's book on 1536, The Year That Changed Henry VIII, and she she mentions the poem by Lancelot de Carle in that, in that book. And I thought, well, that's interesting, because that's exactly the sort of thing that would be a wonderful part component of this new course that would combine the French side and the English side as well. And so I followed up on that lead, um, and I discovered that there really was no modern edition or translation uh, of the book. And so I thought, well, here's a project I could conceivably do myself. And that's that's why I decided to, to go ahead and do this book, which is a new edition and a translation into modern English um, of Carl's poem with several essays among history and also an, uh, a literary interpretation of the, of the poem as well. Yeah, it's a brilliant book. I'm lucky enough to have had a peek inside. I'm, I'm excitedly waiting for my copy, which anyone listening can go and pre-order. And as soon as it's out, it will be sent to you. But yeah, I've enjoyed my peak. And now I'm sure that many of our listeners, especially those who've studied Anne Boleyn's downfall, have, of course, come across this name, Lancelot de Carles or de Carles. Mm -hmm. What do we actually know, if anything, of his early life and his family? 
Right. Uh, well, actually, not that much. We, as is often the case, we don't know the, the his precise date of birth. Uh, scholars do think that it's probably around 1510, which would have made him a very young man at the mm -hmm. time of Anne Boleyn's execution, uh, someone in his mid-20s. He did come from a prominent family, a poli prominent political family around the city of Bordeaux, and clearly he received an excellent classical education. He was a translator of from the Latin and Greek. And around this time, he probably took what we call minor orders in the church. So that's the first step towards the priesthood, but quite often that's the last step that many of these young men take. Uh, many men who are scholars or who are poets will do this in order to get benefices from the church so they have a steady income and they would get, often get attached to a, a noble household and perform some minor services uh, at chapel and various things like that, but it gave them a lot of freedom, therefore, to, to travel and it gave them some income. The only freedom, of course, that they didn't have was the freedom to marry since they had to take a, a vow of, of uh, celibacy. So around this time, then, he, uh, he starts to move towards the court of Francis I. That would probably be around 1534, 1535. So he's about 24, 25 years old, so he's still quite a young a young man. And he apparently had a knack and an interest in, uh, knack for and an interest in poetry. Because the first time we come across his name as a young man is with regard to a, a literary contest that occurred right around 1535, where one pretty well-known French poet opened up the field to all the poets in, in France who wanted to participate to write what they would call a, a blason. So a blason is a descriptive poem about a particular part of the female anatomy, any particular part that you want to choose. So you get poems on the eyebrow, on the eyes, on the lips. So Carl participated in this, and he wrote a poem on the knee, which is rather interesting, and also one on the spirit. So his was not of the body variety. It was actually quite, you know, genteel, the kind of thing that you could actually read and not blush. Um, it was, it was quite well done. Um, and so, but it, he took part in this contest that was a nationwide contest, let's say. And it shows a little bit of his uh, free spirit, I think, at that time. One of the other little bits of information that we have about him at this period is from a later writer whose name is Wontome, who remembers that hearing that Carl was um, a great dancer. And it was one of the most proficient dancers of a specific kind of dance called the Galliard at the court of Francis I that there ever was, which is pretty high praise, I should imagine. Um, and another writer says that they remember hearing Carl recite his poetry uh, for the court's entertainment. So at this point, when he's 24, 25 years old, he's a pretty free-spirited young man uh, interested in the kinds of entertainment that you would probably expect a young man of his age to be interested in. Yeah, I really enjoyed reading that part about the the competition. I thought it was just such a nice <laughs> insight into his character and his personality that we really don't get if all we're looking at is just the summaries of his poetry. There's so much right. more to him, obviously. So I really, right. really enjoyed that. So we do know that he was in London at the time of Anne's execution. So do we know when he arrived and in what capacity was he there? What was he doing? What was his role, I suppose? Okay, so once again, we don't know exactly when he arrived. What we do know is that in 1535, Francis I chose a new amb residential ambassador to uh, to England, and that was uh, the Bishop of Tau, whose name was Antoine de Castelnau, who was also a pretty young man. He was about 30 years old at the time. Uh, and 
the new ambassador required a new secretary. And secretaries were often from this very well-educated class. Uh, Carl fit the bill perfectly because he was also a cleric, and that was another uh, constant that you'd see very often with uh, secretaries of ambassadors uh, throughout Europe. And so he, as a very educated, well-respected person, went along with Castelnau, probably arriving around the same time that he did uh, in 1535, perhaps as, as late as early 1536. So he was about the same age, more or less. Now, the difference between the secretary and the ambassador is that, of course, the ambassador is much more important. Secretary, they can't quite be friends, but they were definitely close together in terms of their accomplishments. And the, also the main difference is that uh, the resident ambassador is in residence and he stays there. Well, whereas the secretary would shuttle between the two places. And so we have uh, some indications, some documents that indicate that Carl went back and forth from England to, to France during this time, carrying correspondence from the court in France to, to England. Yes, he would have had a lot to be reporting on during that period, I imagine. Yes. So he was obviously an eyewitness, as I've said, to those extraordinary events that took place in London in the lead up to yes. Anne's, um, her arrest and her execution in May 1536. So talk to us about the diplomatic dispatch that he sent to Paris in June 1536. It's obviously a, a unique dispatch because normally these things are just brief little letters that are written in prose, um, of course, to from one diplomat to another or from the from the diplomat to, to a court. Uh, and his is distinctive in so many fronts, primarily because it is in verse. Um, it has 1,320 verses that appear in one form or another in all the different manuscripts that are available. It was written in um, what we call decasyllabic rhyming couplets. So that's a verse of 10 syllables and rhyming in couplets. So A, A, B, B, C, C, etc. Uh, it's a pretty easy form of poetry to write. It's not as complicated as, say, writing a sonnet, where it's much more complicated rhyme scheme. And it was the kind of rhyme scheme that was very popular among uh, writers of verse epistles, which uh, was a very important genre at that time. So it's it's the same rhyme scheme that he used in his, writing his earlier poetry, and it's also the same rhyme scheme that he would continue to use later in life. So he's very consistent on that front. They're almost all decasyllabic rhyming couplets. We don't know specifically to whom this letter was addressed. Uh, he just calls this person Monseigneur. So it's pretty clearly not the king yeah. himself, because he probably would have used a different form of address. He would have said sire or roi or something else along those lines. But it was probably one of the people uh, who were very highly placed in the diplomatic regions in France. So it does appear to be the only diplomatic correspondence or dispatch regarding this event that that still exists anyway in France. Now, it's possible that there might have been some other letters were sent that have disappeared for one reason or another, but this is the only thing that actually survived. So it might have served the purpose of being the official correspondence from the uh, French embassy in London back to the court in Rome. And it's clearly everyone was absolutely astounded 
by all of these facts that all of, all of these events that happened. It was, it was, no one could ever have predicted anything quite like that. And it differs from a normal dispatch in the sense that it, it also functions as sort of a general biography of Anne. It talks a lot about her backstory. Uh, and of course, he's especially interested in talking a little bit about her time in France, you know, which was a big connection, therefore, between, you know, Anne Boleyn and the court in France. And in fact, whoever it is that he's addressing, he expects to have remembered the fact that she was actually there. This sort of like, oh, you remember Anne. She was yeah. there in the French. She came over when Mary came over to marry the French king. So it's clearly somebody who's been around the French court for quite some time that he's addressing. And the other way in which it differs from normal dispatches is that it it gives these little vignettes or little anecdotes, um, other scenes that really aren't necessary for a dispatch. It's not just the facts, ma'am. It's it, he he really gives a lot of other interesting details, some of which uh, center around what women are doing at the court at that time. In particular, he has um, some lines dedicated to Catherine and the the suffering that she went through as part of the the divorce. He has about a hundred lines dedicated to Mary, which was quite is quite a lot. And the, the the apparently the French court was quite interested in Mary because I think they were still trying to figure out whether she might be a suitable bride for someone in the in the French nobility at a certain point. He portrays her in an extremely positive fashion as someone who is very well educated, who is not at all disturbed by what's going on because she has this inner peace that comes from being a good Christian woman. She has, they are both really exemplars of saintly patience in his poem. And then, of course, there's the, the scoop of his uh, <laughs> of his poem, which is, you know, how did this story break? Uh, and he delivers this information that nobody else to that point had said, uh, which is that there was an argument that happened between a brother and a sister, the brother being a close counselor to the king and the sister who was part of the court. And the brother is admonishing her for some alleged bad behavior. And she says, well, you think I'm bad. You should see what's going on um, with Anne. And of course, the brother is astounded, doesn't know quite what to do. He's really genuinely perplexed because it's a real dilemma for him whether to say anything or not. He eventually decides to, to tell the story to the king. And one thing leads to another. And then, of course, you've got the stories about the, uh, the trial and the execution as well. So it's more than just a dispatch. It's, it's not just the facts. It's a whole aura of, you know, it's, it's uh, so many different little stories that, um, that come into play here. Absolutely. And we're going to talk more about your interpretation a little bit later on, because of course, on the surface, it appears very damning to Anne, but there may be other ways of looking at this. So we will right. we will get onto that. So listeners, it, it's coming, don't worry. But before we do that, of course, as you've said, this is, you know, a unique sort of way of writing events. I've read a lot of yeah. diplomatic dispatches, nothing like it. You know, Eustace Chapuis yeah. is insightful and illuminating and, and very funny at times, but he doesn't write it poetry. Um, so why do you think he chose to write in verse form? There may be a couple of different reasons. Um, as I said, he was truly shocked and saddened by what it is that he saw. And 
he says in the very beginning of the poem that if I tell this very tragic story in rhyme, it might make it less troubling to you, the reader, make it more palatable. So he can't change how what the outcome is going to be, but he could try to make it a little bit easier to swallow, let's say. And he has said something similar uh, in other works that he wrote when he tries to justify why he wants to write these things in rhyme. He says, um, I want to do this to temper the severity of the pronouncements with the sweetness of meter. So he clearly believed that meter, that rhyme, was something that was pleasurable. And reading poetry, even when the content is tragic, is a better experience, is a more palatable experience. And then, of course, there's also the fact that he fancied himself a successful poet because he had just taken part in this contest uh, with all these other French poets of some repute. And so I think he just wanted to keep his hand um, in poetry. So those are the two reasons, I think, why he might have contributed to that. But you're absolutely right. There's nothing like this at the time or since, as far as I know. Nothing has the kind of literary pretensions that he, he gives to this poem. Yeah, he does sound like such an interesting character. I really wish I could I could meet him now. <laughs> could meet him, yeah. That's really interesting, doesn't he? Now, once that this extraordinary poem, and I, I suppose it's worth just reiterating just how extraordinary these events actually were. I think from our perspective now, yes, it's shocking, of course, but yeah. it's difficult to grasp just how shocking this was. So once this poem with this information reaches Paris, was it circulated in manuscript form or was there a print edition that came out? Well, I think you're absolutely right. Um, we are, of course, acquainted with these facts and it's normal to us to hear about them, but imagine hearing them for the very first time. And, and this was a text that was written on June the 2nd. It was finished on June the 2nd. So within days of her execution. So there's a, a real immediacy to his to his writing that makes it extremely compelling and a wonderful read. So it was circulated primarily in manuscript uh, form. There's only one extant print form of this book, which was done in 1545. Uh, but there may have been an earlier print form, and we can talk a little bit more about that later. But the only one that we have dates from 1545, which is nine years after the fact. And we, we know that it was, it was circulating before that, and presumably in manuscript form. Now, in your book, I was also fascinated to read about how over time his name has become separated from the poem, which, you know, and it was attributed to other people and all this sort of thing. So could yes. you talk to us about this and explain what effect this actually had on Anne's story, the story of Anne's downfall? Right. So Carl does not put his name in the poem, although some poets at that time do include their name one place or another in their poem. It's not in the title, generally speaking. So it, it might have been at some point, but what tends to happen in manuscript culture is that as things get written and rewritten by different scribes over time, they might not recognize the name of the author and they don't think it's that important. And so they stop including it. And so the name was definitely separated from it. There was there was someone that I uh, read, some scholars that I read that, that likened it to uh, an email that gets forwarded again and again and again. And at a certain point, you kind of forget who actually wrote the original email. It's just not that important. And that's the kind of idea. Once it gets copied again and again and again, you just 
forget the name of the original author. And there's only one manuscript, though, that does mention his name, and we can talk about that a little bit later. But otherwise, his name is only attached to the printed version in the 1545. And it took some time uh, before people realized that the printed 1545 version was actually the same poem that uh, had been circulating in manuscript. It, so we get various versions of it that are printed anonymously. And in 1826, there's a scholar whose name is Caplet who printed the poem anonymously. And that was the version that became the basis for the paraphrase in English that we all read in letters and papers. And so that's the one that everybody knows. And so, again, it was based on, um, on an anonymous version of it. So nobody knew where this thing came from. They just knew that it existed. And it, it was a pretty uh, accurate uh, paraphrase, but again, it was just the facts and not, um, well, he wasn't interested at all in the, or the letters and papers are not interested at all in the poetic atmosphere that uh, Carl was creating. But then by 1927, uh, we have a definitive edition by Georges Ascovi, um, which is really solid and very well done. And that puts Carl's name on there. And from then on, everyone can associate Carl's name with, with the uh, poem. You want to know about the, uh, some of the weird? Um, yes. <laughs> attributions. Well, um, as I said, there's only one that has Carl's name attached to it, but there's another very mysterious manuscript that is housed in France in the Valenciennes. Um, Ascoli does include this as part of his edition, and it attributes the poem in its title to somebody named Antoine de Crespin, the Seigneur de Mierne. And this becomes really a, actually a, a famous manuscript in its own right, because very soon in the six, late 16th century, early 17th century, it was paraphrased by a historian called Emmanuel de Mitterrand. So he was writing in the Netherlands and he gives his own French paraphrase of, of Carl's poem. So again, it's kind of like letters and papers. It's, it's not concerned with the poetic atmosphere of it. But what's interesting is that he's very selective and what it is that he talks about. And he's extremely sympathetic to Anne. And in fact, the manuscript is called an apology for Anne Boleyn. Um, he omits an awful lot of what Carl has to say. And he even adds a few things, uh, things like saying that these allegations were reported to the king by enemies of the queen. And Carl doesn't quite say that. He says that Mark's confession was obtained under the pretense of sparing him. And Carl doesn't say that. He says that the magistrates of London found no evidence to support the charges, but they were resolved to be rid of her. Carl doesn't say that. And he says that Anne was beheaded by an executioner from Calais. And Carl doesn't say that. So clearly he's got other sources he's throwing in and not differentiating between those other sources and what he considers to be the, the poem by Carl. And so subsequently, when we read his paraphrase, we're not sure what Carl actually said. And things have been attributed to Carl that weren't actually true. And it gets even more mysterious because nobody quite knows how this name became attached to the poem. Was it a pseudonym that Carl used to, for his protection? Was it a scribe's name? Was it a patron who was trying to steal the, the work for their own glory, but I, I know that it was not a name that was pulled out of a hat because there actually was an Antoine de Crespin 
the Sinyaka Miaona. And I came across this in the course of my research on this because I was looking around various things. And one book that I came across, I think it was actually a dissertation by a scholar from the Netherlands who was investigating civil court proceedings in the area of the Low Countries, not far from where this manuscript surfaces in Valenciennes. And in the course of that man's research, that scholar's research, he discovered uh, documents about this court case where Antoine de Crespin, who was a member of the minor nobility, had a lawsuit going on regarding how much money somebody owed him and his wife as a marriage gift. And this was happening around 1536. So we know he was a real man, this Antoine de de Caspin. How his name got attached to this poem, though, still remains a mystery, because clearly he is not the author of this poem. We know that for a fact. There are so many other pieces of evidence that attach it to, to Carl. So it's a total mystery how this uh, how this actually happened. Yeah, and it's confused so many people over the years. This uh, <laughs> totally. Sometimes we get yeah. two versions of the poem, don't we, and by two right. different and people. <laughs> many people think that it's, oh. that there is a poem by Carl and a poem by I love how not only is obviously the poem itself fascinating and the events that it reports fascinating, but how the story after the poem is really fascinating too, isn't it? You could kind of do Absolutely. a movie just on that with the, um, the, two, the two authors. <laughs> I agree. I suppose to make it a little bit clearer for our listeners as to why this has become quite muddled and and confusing over the centuries, there are at least 16 different manuscript versions, as you mentioned in your book, of Mm -hmm. the poem housed in libraries in Europe, mainly in France, with only one manuscript housed in the British Library. So talk to us about these different versions a little. For example, you've already touched on the fact that obviously the content isn't identical, but maybe just talk about that a little bit more. And is Lancelot Carl identified as the poet on any of these manuscripts? Sure. So he is identified on only one Parisian manuscript. Yes. Uh, the rest are all anonymous, uh, except for the, the misattribution to, uh, to Antoine de Crispin. There are copies in Bordeaux, uh, which is the area, as I said, where Carl actually came from. So that's interesting that, uh, that it, there's one that ends up there. Uh, some others in the, in the north of France, Soissons. There's one at the Vatican Library actually, which is interesting. There's one in Munich and Karlsruhe in Germany, and there's one in Brussels. But the one that I used for my text, today's text, is the one that's in the British Library. And I chose that one because it's the most complete. Uh, It's the only one that has all 1,320 verses. Uh, Plus, it does have a couple of extra verses. It has actually eight extra verses, to be exact. Two sets of two verses in the middle of the poem and four verses at the final. Uh, at the end. But in addition to its completeness, it is just a lovely object in its own right, in a way that none of the others compares to, absolutely none of the others. It was very carefully done in a lovely italic hand. So it was a professional scribe who wrote it out. It was written on parchment rather than paper. It has gilt edges, so gold leaf edges. Uh, The first folio has gold ink uh, at the, on the capital letters of every verse. And so it was clearly done for somebody with money. We don't know who. Uh, there's no dedicatory page attached to it, and at least not anymore. It's, but it's not an ordinary copy. And I was just smitten when I saw that particular yeah. manuscript. And so that's the one that I, for all kinds of different reasons, I chose to be uh, my base text. 
I think I came across your work. It's been quite some time. I, I'm trying to remember now. I think it's been almost a couple of years since I came across something yeah. that you, a, a talk that you delivered online, I think it was. And I reached out to you because I was so incredibly excited by your work and what you had discovered. So you've actually found a number of unknown verses that have up until now not been published elsewhere, certainly not in any sort of Tudor biography. So I'd love it if you could talk to us about these particular verses. What information do they give? And how did you come across them? Right. So um, as I was trying to embark on doing a new edition, I wanted to make sure that I actually was relying on the manuscripts themselves as opposed to Oscarie's version of the, the manuscripts. Um, so I did research trips in various places, including Paris, the Bibliothèque Nationale. And I came across this one manuscript, which is, just for your information, number 10194. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> and um, I started leaving so I went verse by verse by verse to, you know, check it against um, what I had in my edition. And I was absolutely astounded because there were 15 different verses, new verses that hadn't appeared in Oskoli's edition, even though Oskoli was using this as part of his edition. He just made no mention of these extra verses. Um, so they're divided into two sections. One section, those verses are really not that essential. I think they might have been changed for poetic reasons, but it's the second set of verses that content-wise are, are really, really quite important. I mean, I'm not sure why Oskali didn't include them in his edition. I can tell you this, it's a very difficult manuscript to read. It looks like it was very hastily written, very sloppy, basically. And it was a bear to try to figure out what those verses meant. And I'm not an, uh, an expert in paleography, but I sat down one weekend and so I'm going to figure this out. So it was a puzzle. And I kind of looked at the various, at the script, various letters and said, well, okay, I know this letter from this other word and this other place. Yeah, so it must yeah. be this and it must be that. And then I was able to, to piece it together and I'll read them to you. Yes, basically, the, the, you. at least four part, the four verses that I think are the most uh, important. And it, this is, he's describing the moment of Anne's execution, and he says that everyone, on the basis of her mightily steady end, judges her life to have been prudent and believes that they have committed a great offense in having thought so ill of her. And we never see anything quite like this elsewhere in the poem. Now, he's, he's very careful about not saying one way or the other whether he believes she is guilty or not. That's beyond his purview and he wouldn't have that kind of information. But he, what he can report is what he sees, how other people are reacting to it. And by saying that she was prudent, well, that means something. And it's the closest he comes to being explicit about her innocence by at least saying that other people believed that she was innocent. And this is, I think, critical because it's very different from anything else that you see anywhere else in the, in, in the poem. Absolutely. And we'll talk more about the interpretation, but that's why I was just so astounded when I read and when I read those lines, because I can't believe that they've been basically left out for all, for all these out. centuries. Yeah, totally. And, but it does, as you say, if it was very difficult to read the manuscript, it could be one reason why they were left right. out in the first place. 
So I suppose re another really important side of this, which sometimes gets forgotten as well, actually a lot of the time, is how the poem was actually received. So a lot of the time we will get snippets of the paraphrase or the actual poem, but very little about how this poem was received, how Henry re reacted to it when he first encountered it. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, unfortunately, I have not come across any reactions to the poem in the French court itself. So once it got there, we have absolutely no idea what people thought of it, although one would assume that they were equally astounded by the events that were going on. But what is really interesting is what happens in, on the English side of things. And so about a year after the fact, there is some diplomatic correspondence between France and England that leads us to think that a copy of the poem came into the hands of Stephen Gardner, who was at that time acting as the uh, English ambassador in France. Um, he somehow or other got his hands on a copy of this poem, read it himself, and thought, well, this is interesting, <laughs> and said, you know, I'll bet you Henry would like to read this in one way, sends it off to Henry. And so what we have, the correspondence, is a letter from uh, Risley, who writes back to Gardner saying, thanks for sending us this, this interesting book. Uh, Henry was actually furious uh, when he read this. He was especially upset because he knows that it was written by somebody named Carl, who was living in the ambassador's palace, Bridewell Palace, you know, and incidentally, my property, <laughs> by the way. And, uh, and he says, you know, this person really needs to be punished and you need to destroy all these copies. You got to tell Francis this is not acceptable and we've got to take, take care of it. And he also, refer we know that it's Carl's poem because he, he says, Carl, he mentions his name. Yes, he says his he, name. Yeah. <laughs> right? He calls it a tragedy, which is one of the titles that is often given to it. Um, there's no doubt, I think, that that, that was the, the book that he was, he was given. Now, I wanted to make sure that we all know that this was not, in other words, a presentation copy sent to Henry. Um, it was a copy that somehow or other Gardner got his hands on, either because somebody stupidly gave it to him, <laughs> or he confiscated it, stole yeah. it somehow or other, and said, you know, this is, we, we can't let this proliferate through, mm. through France. And so he sent it to, um, so he sent it to Henry, who was not at all pleased. And then very soon after that, there's a really short mention of it in Thomas Cromwell's Remembrances, his to-do list, you know, which says, uh, it's really rather chilling, it says, uh, get the French ambassador's answer regarding the slanderer's book. <laughs> so yeah. they were not pleased. You know, this was a big to-do, apparently. And then several months later, there's another letter from France uh, to the English court talking about how the French are denying knowledge of this book. They don't, they're saying, oh, I don't know what you're talking about, this slanderous poem. And, you know, they're not getting, no one's being punished. The author's not being punished. Publishers aren't being punished. Uh, and again, we know that he, he's referring to Carl's book because he mentions it as a poem that was written in the Bishop of Taub's residence, which is, he was, he was the ambassador. Now, what's really curious about all of this is that all of these letters refer to the poem as having been printed. They're talking about imprints and publishers. And this is 1537. And the first printed edition that we know of dates from 1545. So unless they were vastly wrong, and it doesn't sound like they were, because the correspondence goes on and on about, we've got to get rid of these publishers, you know, that we have to punish the publishers. Somehow it was probably printed almost immediately upon its receipt 
in France, uh, so within a year anyway. And there probably was a lost imprint. Now, what form that took, we don't know. It could have been just a pamphlet, which was a very popular way of, of publishing, especially something short like this. And pamphlets are ephemeral. You know, they're easy to, to destroy. Um, so it's possible that they're all lost. But we, there's no evidence. Uh, no one ever talks about any version that was printed before 1545. So it's a really rather curious. And so the other thing that we're going to get onto very soon is the fact that Henry was, as you've said, totally appalled by this book, book that he got his hand on. But yet the poem seems to, well, at least the first half of the poem appears to suggest that Anne was at least capable of the charges. And of course, Mm -hmm. some historians have used this as their basis for their argument to say that she was in fact guilty. So before we hear about your interpretation and talk about this sort of tension and, and confusion there, could you comment on how the poem has been used by modern historians? Sure. Um, well, I think the first person who really uses it uh, at any length is probably Eric Ives, who thought that he kind of was dismissive of its importance, though, because he thought that it was basically Carl getting information from Cromwell, and he calls it something like a Cromwell in, in verse form. Right. Basically, that it's you know it's the it's the standard issue from the from the English Gordon from Cromwell in particular. So he thinks it's not very important. But in response to that, uh, George Bernard makes this the centerpiece of his whole argument on the fall of Anne Boleyn, saying that uh, Carl probably had his own uh, sources of information, as anybody who was uh, in an embassy probably would, one way or another, and that that's where all of this information came from. But he uses it, as you were saying, to, to suggest that since this accusation came from Anne's inner circle and not necessarily from, from Cromwell, that this suggests that she was in fact guilty and that everybody knew it. Uh, and she was the talk of the town, in other words, that everybody knew something was happening there. And so these accusations are more plausible in his mind be- because of this poem. And, to, and as you know, he goes on to say that he believes that she was in fact guilty. And other historians, of course, some of them believe that and others don't. Um, but um, many of them think that the poem is actually fairly non-judgmental or not biased in particular against Anne, and that's fairly even-handed. There are things that say are negative about her, but there are other things that are positive about her. Except uh, Ruth Warnicke uh, does say that she thinks that this is a part of a French French hostility towards Anne, so she reads it as much more hostile towards it. So, you know, it does go back and forth, and it's amazing how the same poem uh, has uh, (laughs) generated so many vastly different readings. It really is. Yeah, it supported lots of different arguments over the years, <laughs> sure. that's for sure. But what's unique about the work you've done, of course, is that not only have you translated this very long poem, as you've said, up to 1,320 verses. It's very interesting, though, but very long poem and included the previously unknown verses, which is incredibly exciting. You've also included extensive explanatory notes, which was so helpful, and a literary analysis of the poem, which offers so many, I think, fascinating and unique insights, especially because you've looked at it from the perspective of a 16th century reader, which I think has been missing a lot. So talk to us about your interpretation of the story of the death of Anne Boleyn and help us understand why Henry was so enraged by it, especially when some people are using it to support her guilt. So what's happened here? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so Henry doesn't come across very well in the poem. Uh, <laughs> there are hints that he acts like a lovesick schoolboy with regard to Anne, that he's very cruel, especially with regard to his wife and daughter, that he's capable of unspeakable cruelty with Thomas More and the martyrs and so forth. So that would be a good enough reason to already get um, Henry quite upset, I should think. But I think what's really important for my own understanding of it is that I think that he read those verses that we just uncovered, that that's really what set him over the edge. Because although, as you were saying, Carl early on says, or he's never is very explicit whether she's innocent or guilty, but, and early on he says that she's capable of evil and malice. I think there's a real change in attitude about the middle of the poem, pretty much exactly the middle of the poem, that shows a completely different um, understanding of this. And Carl, for instance, keeps using the word pity regard to the scenes that he's seeing. And that word pity has a very precise meaning in classical times and through the Renaissance. And it was an emotion that you would feel when you were confronted with undeserved suffering. So it's not just sympathy or gee, isn't the sad. It, it means that this person doesn't deserve the suffering that they that they are undergoing. There are also a lot of biblical references, which would have been much more apparent to people in the 16th century than they are to us, particularly echoes of Christ's crucifixion. So he's kind of implying that what's happening here is not just any old martyrdom, but the supreme martyrdom of, of, of Christ. So it's applied to the execution of Anne and applied to also to the men as well. And he shows how Anne is very proficient in what's called the art of dying, the ars moriendi. So when you were faced with death in the, in the 16th century, you had, especially if you knew you were going to die, as you would if you were being going to be executed, you could prepare to die well. And in the 16th century, there was a belief that you could basically read the state of somebody's soul, depending on how they behaved at the moment of death. And he repeatedly talks about her being serene and having a steadfast nature. And all of these are signs of her innocence or would have been interpreted by the people in the 16th century, a sense of her innocence. Not so much us anymore, because we don't actually believe that you can read the state of somebody's yeah, soul yeah. just on the basis of how they die. But for them, this was a real thing. And it was the only interpretation that they would probably have given it. And I think that this comes down then to those extra verses uh, that I found, because it talks again about her behavior uh, specifically, and that everyone on the basis of how she behaved judged her life to have been prudent, and they're sorry for having misjudged or said some such evil things about her. And prudence in particular is an interesting word that he uses there, because prudence is one of the four cardinal virtues, and it's the virtue that you need to discern how to behave properly. So to say somebody has prudence, would be, it would be almost impossible for them to engage in the kind of sinful behavior that she was being accused of. It's not to say that she was sinless by any means, but prudence would not lead to adultery and incest. I mean, that's that just goes without saying. So I think that's about as close as you're going to get to saying that, yeah. you know, there's somebody saying, you know, she's she she must be she must be innocent. That's why I believe that this is the version that was sent to Henry from. France. Uh, not that particular manuscript, which we still have in France, which probably never left, but it's the same version of the story that that manuscript records. And what I further think about this is that the manuscript that we do have now 
the one that was, seems very hastily written, very sloppily written, I think is probably a handwritten version of that long lost printed text that was sent in 1537, that was published in 1537. Now, it sounds kind of strange for us to copy out a book by hand, but it was not uncommon in the 16th century. There weren't that many books to begin with. And so, and people were used to a scribal culture. And so it happened. And if anybody at the French court got wind of what was happening, that Henry was livid and was insisting with to Francis that all these books be destroyed, somebody could have just surreptitiously taken the book, copied it out by hand so that they can ensure that at least one copy of this remained in that version. So I think that may be what's happening. I can't prove any of that, but I do know that the way that that poem is described or referred to in the diplomatic correspondence is exactly the way it is titled in that version of the manuscript. It talks, it gives the name of Carl, it calls the poem a tragedy, and it calls him a protonotary, which is a, a cleric, secretarial cleric for, uh, for the church. So I think that's what was going on there. Such a fascinating story. And I totally agree with you. That would be enough to enrage Henry more <laughs> completely. <laughs> And to demand that Francis does something about that. And, and it's interesting because if there were other printed versions, perhaps, you know, he did get his way in the end. And that version with those more damning verses was slightly amended or, you know, something right. seems to have happened there. Yeah, they, it's possible that they realized that they were verses that were particularly leading towards this rage on Henry's part and they took them out. And so the other versions don't have that uh, anymore. That, that could very well be. But we'll never really know. <laughs> yeah, it's difficult. Yes, it, it is tricky, isn't it? The other interesting thing is that, of course, as secretary to the French ambassador, it's almost, it's very likely that he would have met or at least seen Anne, I should say seen Anne, because, of course, the French ambassador was at court all the time trying to compete with this, the imperial ambassador. <laughs> yeah, and in late, early April, they are there dining in Anne's apartments for certain Easter celebrations and different celebrations mm -hmm. at court. Of course, we don't know that he was exactly the French ambassador was there, but we don't know that his secretary was. But it's likely that he did see her and was able to maybe observe her or, you know, admire her. Even. So sure. it's, it's really interesting, really, really interesting. And I can't tell you how grateful I am for your incredible analysis that, as I said, has given so many new insights because you've come from this different perspective of inquiring as to what would the 16th century reader have thought and in particular, what would Henry have thought? So mm -hmm. Joanne, thank you so much. That is, you know, I know that's going to be so helpful to so many uh, researchers, writers, scholars, academics. So what's next for you, Joanne? What's, what, what are your next projects? Well, I'm in the middle of uh, researching and writing another book. Um, again, it, with my interest in Tudor history, uh, playing along with my actual expertise in French and Italian literature. And the book is going to be tentatively titled uh, Romancing Henry VIII. And it's kind of a little bit of a play on words because I'll be looking at plays and short stories and poems that are written in the Romance languages, so French, Spanish, and Italian, uh, in the 16th and 17th centuries about Henry's reign. So I've got it divided into different chapters uh, with different characters who are going to appear. So the first one is on Mary, Queen of France, because as I said, you know, the French were really interested in her, obviously, since she was living in France. So then there will be a chapter on Cromwell and his Italian experiences. So the Italians wrote about him. The Great Matter, so a lot of Spanish texts on that as well. Thomas More, who's everyone's interested in. And Boleyn, of course. Also Margaret Tudor and Lord 
Thomas Howard, whose story uh, features in Hillary Mantel's newest yes. version, <laughs> the, the last volume of, the, of that. But before that, had been actually talked about by an Italian writer and a French writer as well. Uh, I'm not sure that Hillary Mantel was aware of those, but they did. It did excite the imagination even in the 16th century, of course, in the Six Wives. So again, it's a literary analysis, not a historical, but of these historical figures. That sounds fantastic. I can't wait for that one as well. I can't <laughs> sounds... wait to write it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still in the midst. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I know that can take a long time, but we will wait patiently. I've been very patient with this work. I will wait patiently for that one. Now, Joanne, there is one other thing we do on our episodes of Talking Tudors, and that's what I like to call just a game of 10 to go. These are just questions <laughs> just for us to get to know you a little bit better. So the first one is what's an inspirational place maybe one close to your home that you like to visit? Gosh, an inspirational place. Uh, well, to get on to the, the back to the Tudors, I would probably say Hever Castle. <laughs> it is it's just an incredibly beautiful, but pretty much any Tudor site in England was, was amazingly inspirational. Hampton Court Palace as well. But yes, um, I'd love those places. Oh, I, I could I could be there all the time. <laughs> Me too. They're so atmospheric and just wonderful. Do you have a signature recipe? Ah, well, I'm of Italian heritage. So of, it has to be an, an Italian pasta sauce. Yes, absolutely. Oh, yum. Yes, that sounds really, really good. Now, what's a book that you have read more than once? Oh, my. There are plenty of those because I'm, since I teach literature. Oh, of course. Yes. Um, yeah. So do I? I have to do something that I don't teach. I would let's say uh, let's say Dante's Divine Comedy. Okay. Because fantastic. every time you read that, you see something new. Something new. And I'm yeah. Trying to work. This is the um, the anniversary year. He he died in twelve in thirteen twenty one. So wow. uh, lots of commemorations of yeah. of Dante, and I'm trying to go through the uh, full one hundred cantos again this year. And what's your favorite season? Around here, it's generally fall. Um, spring is lovely sometimes, but often we go from winter to summer and there's not much of a small of a, of a, of a spring. But fall in northern Indiana is lovely, or autumn, I guess you might call it, yeah. uh, is, is, uh, is really lovely with the changing colors and so forth. It's oh, usually yeah. the best weather. That's and my favorite season. season yeah, no. <laughs> you'd be outside. Yeah, it is a beautiful season. We're in autumn now and it's, it is, it's beautiful. It's my favorite season. Normally it's not rainy. We've had actually a lot of rain, but generally it's a good time to visit Sydney if, if anyone's is thinking that right? about that in the future. <laughs> okay. I'll write yeah. that down. <laughs> write that down. Autumn's lovely. Summer can get a bit too hot for people, I think. Mm -hmm. um, what about, what's an ideal Sunday morning for you? Well, a, a really an ideal Sunday morning would be my husband fixing breakfast and um, with pancakes or eggs or something along those lines and a nice leisurely cup of coffee or two. That would be an ideal any morning, frankly. Exactly. That's so true. And do you have a favorite period film that you enjoy? Actually, A Man for All Seasons probably would be my favorite. And apart from the Tudors, which you've obviously become interested in of late so what other periods of history do you feel drawn to is there any other period of history well the, the middle ages uh, I've, I've always been interested in in the middle ages as well um so the whole courtly atmosphere is wonderful yeah definitely but i think i can be pretty eclectic in anything historical which for us would be anything beyond 250 years that's definitely uh, yeah exactly that's why a lot to explore. London. yeah that's why i enjoyed living in england so much because i i could see these things that I otherwise would just be reading about. So true. You can see the layers, can't you? It's incredible. Uh, 
and any pets, Joanne? Not at the moment, but we've had cats quite a lot throughout our lives. And are you an early riser or a night owl or somewhere in between? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I'm more of an early riser than a night owl, I would say. Especially when I was young and single, I was definitely an early riser. You have to make compromises when you're living with somebody else and their schedules as well. So might have it might be a little less early than I than I might otherwise naturally be. And the very last question is, what is something you're looking forward to this year? This year? Oh, traveling. I sh- certainly hope that we would have that option to, to travel again. Um, it's, you know, obviously it's kind of iffy. Our government has said that put England and many, most of Europe actually on the do not travel for the time being, but I'm hoping that that will change. I would very much love to go back to England for a visit, for an extended visit, uh, not to live there anymore, but to, for an extended visit, I would love to travel. So yes, anything that's back to normal, back which to is normal. something I'm yeah, looking, back to normal. I'm looking exactly. forward to. Awesome. Going to theater yeah. and concerts and all those things that we used to take for granted. And sorry, there is one more thing. I said last question, but there's one more thing and that's the Tudor takeaway. So I always oh. ask my guests for a suggestion of something for our listeners to go and look at or explore or listen to after the episode. So do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? Well, this is something I've come to appreciate, especially during the pandemic when I couldn't go to libraries. And that's the whole uh, site of Google Books, which is absolutely amazing because it has digitized copies of early imprints, 16th century imprints, 17th century imprints from all over the, uh, the world, all downloadable, all free. Um, and it's just absolutely wonderful. And the one book that I would recommend that I'm pretty sure most people have not read is a, an English translation of a French novel that I'm going to be writing about in my next project by a man named Jean Préchac. And it's called The English Princess or the Duchess Queen. And it's about Mary Tudor and Mary, Queen of France, and and her romance with uh, Charles Brandon. Uh, Anne Boleyn, of course, figures into it a little bit in some of the court intrigue. It's a two-volume work. And so it was originally written in French, but almost immediately translated into English. And you can find that on Google Books. Fantastic. That is definitely one in, I don't know how many episodes we're up to now, 110 or something <laughs> that we haven't heard before. So thank you so much for giving us something new to go and explore. That sounds absolutely awesome. And again, Joanne, thank you so much for taking the time to come and tell us a little bit about your really quite amazing research. And I'm just so grateful that you took the time to do that. So thank you. Oh, thank you. The pleasure is mine. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music